I'm, I'm delighted to uh, be here at uh, First Things. Uh, I have been receiving nourishment and orientation from this extraordinary magazine since its debut in 1990. There's really nothing like it. Um, and in fact, my wife rather resents the uh, appearance of the new issue each month. She claims that I'm so absorbed in that issue for the first 24 hours that she can't really say anything to me that gets heard. And I'm delighted to speak about Dietrich von Hildebrand here in the setting of First Things. He is one of those thinkers who should count as a kind of intellectual ancestor of First Things. In fact, von Hildebrand himself once founded a journal very like First Things. In the 1930s, when he was in his 40s, he founded a journal in Vienna called the Christliche Ständestadt, devoted primarily to resisting the advance of Hitler in Europe, and especially to resisting the annexation of Austria to Nazi Germany. But the magazine had a broad cultural scope, very like First Things. It wanted to deal with the Nazi menace at the level of First Things, First Principles. In the pages of his review, he wrote not as a journalist, but as a philosopher. In fact, von Hildebrand wrote exactly in the spirit of First Things when, in one of his articles in his Vienna Review, he warned against a certain religious quietism that disdained public expressions of faith and wanted to confine religious life to personal interiority and liturgical practice. So permit me just to say a little more about this article of his, which makes for such kinship of spirit with First Things before I come to the main point of my presentation. Von Hildebrand understood how this quietism arose in the 30s uh, as a temptation for German Catholics. He thought that it arose from an overly politicized German Catholicism. So speaking of the center party, the German Catholic party, as it was at the beginning of the 20th century, he said, many Catholics became more involved in working for denominational schools, in getting the state to pay the salary of priests, in securing for Catholics equal access to public positions, and even in securing power, the power of the center party, more than in the strictly religious transformation in Christ of the individual. The spirit of compromise that is inevitable in political life entered too strongly into the religious lives of Catholics. And so it was that even before the rise of National Socialism, Catholics who were really serious about their faith began to call for a depoliticalization of Catholicism. So far, von Hildebrand. Now, he entirely embraced this call, even to the point of speaking of the bankruptcy of political Catholicism in Germany. But he also saw the danger for Catholics in the 1930s in reacting against the excessively politicized Catholicism of earlier years. The best of them were in danger of withdrawing altogether from involvement in political life. So von Hildebrand warned that Catholics must not deal with their past by simply abandoning the public square and failing to bear witness in it against the evil emanating from Berlin. This would be, he says, a Fahnenflucht, deserting the flag. And he wrote, at a time when the Antichrist raises his head in Bolshevism and National Socialism, when Christ is persecuted with a greater hatred than ever before, when there is a revolt not just against the sphere of the supernatural, but against the sphere of the spirit in general. Every Catholic must fight for Christ in the political sphere with full commitment, in season and out of season. He must uphold the requirements of the kingdom of God, which 
also implies the requirements of the natural law. End of that quote. So von Hildebrand distinguished, just as Father Newhouse distinguished, between two different kinds of Christian involvement in political life. There is the involvement whereby Christians get so strongly assimilated into <clears throat> this worldly political activity that they lose their identity. But there is also the involvement whereby Christians live their Christian commitment so ardently that they acquire a prophetic voice in the public square. So all of this I just offer by way of introduction and to show how fitting and how natural it is that the Dietrich von Hildebrand Legacy Project uh, is collaborating this evening with First Things. And now I come to the main focus of the lecture, namely a discussion of what is perennially important in Dietrich von Hildebrand. What does he have to say to us today? Why is something like the von Hildebrand Legacy Project necessary? What would we lose if his voice were to be entirely forgotten? So I've picked out three main aspects uh, of the von Hildebrand legacy that speak powerfully to us today. So I'll speak first of Dietrich von Hildebrand as witness, uh, then of him as a personalist philosopher, and then finally of Dietrich von Hildebrand as philosopher of beauty and of the human heart. So to the first. Von Hildebrand was a rare kind of philosopher. He was not just a thinker who formulating truth. He was also a witness who testified to the truth. Let me explain what I mean by giving you some background to those Vienna years that I just referred to. Von Hildebrand was aware of National Socialism from the time of its first appearance on the German scene. He must have been a well-known opponent of it already in 1923. For in that year, when Hitler tried to seize power in Bavaria, von Hildebrand's name was on a short list of enemies of National Socialism who were marked for execution. As National Socialism revived in the late 20s, von Hildebrand, a professor of philosophy at the University of Munich, became ever more resolute and uncompromising in his public opposition to it. He left Germany for good in March of 1933, just days after Hitler had taken office, and he would never again live in his native country. Von Hildebrand saw in the Austrian Chancellor Dolfus, the only statesman in Europe who was willing to stand up to Hitler. He moved to Vienna and founded a review, the one just mentioned, in which he would do battle with the Nazi ideology in the way that he knew best, namely at the level of philosophical and theological first principles. The first issue of his review appeared in December of 33, and subsequent issues appeared weekly until Hitler entered Vienna in 1938. For over four years, von Hildebrand, living in constant danger of assassination, bore witness in the pages of his review. And by the way, his voice was heard not only in Austria, but even in Berlin. In 1937, the German ambassador von Papen sent Hitler an urgent dispatch detailing the work of those anti-Nazi forces in Austria that von Papen calls the worst and most dangerous enemies of the Third Reich in Austria. He informed Hitler that the moving spirit behind these machinations is the well-known emigrant Professor Dietrich von Hildebrand. He then proposed to Hitler a carefully planned strike that would eliminate these enemies with one blow. I hope that at this point the parallel with the 
editors of First Things comes to an end. That is, I <laughs> hope that Rusty Reno and uh, David are not being targeted for assassination by their critics. <clears throat> but I still have to explain better what I mean by von Hildebrand as witness. He seems to have had from the beginning an unusual insight into a kind of gestalt of evil in Nazism. Many of his friends, he relates this in great detail in his memoirs, would seize upon positive elements in Nazism, such as the recovery of German national pride after the humiliation of World War I and Versailles, or such as the exercise of real authority after the post-war years of indecision and drift. In fact, the German Catholic bishops gathered in Fulda in 1933 stressed these very things as they took a welcoming stance toward their new chancellor. Some Catholics, as von Hildebrand relates in his memoirs, wanted to distinguish between mainstream Nazism and the radical fringes of the movement, saying that though the radical elements were certainly beyond the pale, the mainstream still had some good substance and was susceptible of being influenced in a Christian direction. All of these positive elements made no impression on von Hildebrand. They were for him nothing but so much dust thrown in his face to distract from the fundamental reality of Nazism. They never obscured, not, not in the least, his strong sense of a radical evil at the heart of Nazism. And he increasingly, in the pages of his journal, spoke of the face of the Antichrist in Hitler. Now, it's fairly easy for us, at a distance of more than 70 years, to discern the profile of evil in Hitler. Indeed, Hitler has become everybody's choice example of radical evil. But not many of us living in Germany in the early 30s would have discerned it so clearly. Most of us would have been like those German bishops of the time. We would have been drawn to the idea of building some bridge to National Socialism, of opening a dialogue with it, of discerning some sign of the times and the dynamic unfolding of the Nazi movement. And we would have thought that talking about Hitler in terms of the Antichrist was a gross oversimplification. Many of us would have probably felt superior to von Hildebrand with our more nuanced approach to Nazism. And we might have rebuked him for describing it in such primitive black and white terms. We might have even charged him with fundamentalism. Here then is the way that he challenges us. He was entirely capable of making fine distinctions, of preserving subtle nuance, of leaving questions open. He does that kind of thing all the time in his rich philosophical writings. But he also knew that there is a time to take a stand, to say yes to good and no to evil. He teaches us in a way that should not be forgotten, that there is a time for the distinguishing of intellectual points, and there is a time for what St. Ignatius called the discernment of spirits. There is a time for discourse and a time for witness. Permit me to share with you an impression I still have from my first encounter with von Hildebrand in 1966, the occasion described by Rusty Reno. Vatican II had just ended, and we were already experiencing some of the confusion of the post-conciliar church. When Hildebrand spoke at Georgetown University, where I was an undergraduate, on the true meaning of aggiornamento. He denounced those who, in the name of conciliar removal, renewal, were putting into question some fundamentals of Christian faith. And as he spoke, it struck me he is bearing witness. It was a new experience for me. 
I had at that time just been reading about a lecture given by a great German philosopher at the end of his life and about the strong impression he had made on everyone as a quintessential philosopher. And as I listened to von Hildebrand that evening, I thought to myself, this is something different from a philosopher. I am hearing not a professor, but a confessor. The book that grew out of that lecture of von Hildebrand's became his widely read work, The Trojan Horse in the City of God. It is a book full of sharp and careful distinctions, as only a philosopher can provide them, but it also contains something more than philosophy, just as the lecture I had heard contained something more. So in today's intellectual climate, saturated as it is by relativism, we can have a hard time bearing witness. Even we, who want no part in relativism, can be inhibited by it, so that we end up speaking in muted tones. We need the example of von Hildebrand, who reminds us that there are times when we stand between good and evil, and not just between more and less good, and that at such times we are called to say with our whole being, yes, to good and no, to evil. Now I come to the second uh, part, uh, the second theme in von Hildebrand. Dietrich von Hildebrand as personalist philosopher and as one who especially enriched through his personalism our understanding of man and woman. Now, I said that von Hildebrand was not only a philosopher. Now I have to hasten to add that he was also a philosopher and a very eminent one. In fact, he is important to us today in part because of who he was as philosopher. Von Hildebrand received his philosophical formation in the phenomenological school of Edmund Husserl, who immediately recognized von Hildebrand's philosophical gifts. In fact, Husserl wrote in his assessment of von Hildebrand's dissertation, I almost want to say that the genius of Adolf von Hildebrand, the father of von Hildebrand, a famous German sculptor, has been inherited by his son in the form of a philosophical genius. And even when von Hildebrand converted to Catholicism in 1914, his philosophical orientation remained uh, that of phenomenology. Now, some of you will wonder what phenomenology means. And I know from experience that a short and sweet definition of phenomenology, which people ask me for all the time, can't be given. <laughs> uh, for our purposes, let me just uh, In the hands of von Hildebrand, phenomenology becomes personalism. In the seminar that's also running now, we were exploring in the first meeting that connection between phenomenology and personalism. Dietrich von Hildebrand's philosophy, like that of John Paul, is centered on the human person. And phenomenology gave him the resources to avoid reducing the human person to something lower and to capture the irreducible in human persons and to articulate what distinguishes the human person and what ultimately underlies the image of God in man. One of his papers in his Vienna Review was entitled The Struggle for the Human Person, in which he analyzes the fearful depersonalization at work in the totalitarianisms of the time. Now, his personalism is everywhere in evidence in the pages of his Vienna Review, but what I want to show you is how he deploys his personalism, not so much in relation to the aggressive anti-personalism of the contemporary world, but in relation to his own Christian tradition. 
And here is an example for which he is very well known. For centuries, Christians thought of the conjugal act primarily in terms of procreation. Only at the beginning of the 20th century did they begin to recognize in the conjugal act the expression of marital love and to recognize this as a meaning of the conjugal act distinct from procreation. Of course, marital love had been previously set in relation to marriage, but not exactly in relation to the conjugal act, which, as I say, had been almost exclusively seen in terms of procreation. This is why some early church fathers, including St. Augustine, taught that marital relations during pregnancy or after menopause were venially sinful. Marital relations seemed to be so essentially about procreation as to lose their justification in the case of non-infertility. But if man and woman in marriage enact their spousal self-donation through their one flesh union, then their marital intimacy has abundant mean, meaning even in the case of non-infertility. And with this, an entirely new and eminently personal dimension of the conjugal act comes to light. Now it's well known that this understanding of the dual meaning of the conjugal act was taken over and ratified by Vatican II in the Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, in the chapter on marriage. Now if we go back into the decades before Vatican II and look for the first Catholic thinker to speak about this dual meaning, we are led to Dietrich von Hildebrand. He was one of the first, and according to some scholars, he was the first to have distinguished this dual meaning. Now, I'd like to try to show you how von Hildebrand's phenomenological orientation aided him in achieving this important new insight. Now, I was being evasive um, about what phenomenology is, but let me just say this much, that the phenomenological philosopher is particularly attuned to the inner life of persons, or to what John Paul called the subjectivity of persons. The phenomenologist does not just attend to the external behavior of persons, but to their interiority, or to what is called the lived experience of persons. Now, spousal self-donation is not apparent at the level of external behavior. Self-donation exists as something hidden in the interiority of the spouses. It does not appear in nature like procreation appears. Only a philosophy that is alive to personal interiority will detect this dimension of the conjugal act and do justice to it in philosophical reflection. Notice, too, that von Hildebrand's insight into let's say, spousal self-donation as enacted in the one flesh unity of man and woman yields a richer understanding of the conjugal act as a personal act. Once the conjugal act is seen not just as an instrument of nature for propagating the species, but also as an act in which Persons give themselves to each other in an incomparable bodily way, then that act takes on all kinds of personalist significance that it had hitherto lacked. It stands out now f as far more different from animal procreation than before. And it becomes vulnerable to different kinds of using of persons. It becomes now endangered by being performed in a loveless way, a danger that was little considered in the procreation-only paradigm. Spouses now face more of a challenge in conducting their conjugal relations 
in a manner that really respects each other as persons. Here, then, is one way, one very well-known way in which von Hildebrand's personalism has been an enrichment for those who have felt its influence. Just consider John Paul's theology of the body, which has found such resonance with the men and women of our time. Well, it rests upon that personalist understanding of human sexuality that von Hildebrand first achieved. And so you see why we at the Hildebrand Legacy Project think that his personalism is a precious legacy that must not be lost, that must be more deeply understood and further developed. And in dealing with the challenging issues of gender and sexuality in our time, we will find a rich and not yet exhausted resource in the work of von Hildebrand. And with time allowed, I would tell you about some other themes in von Hildebrand's personalism. Uh, I might tell you about how he's gone beyond other philosophers in his understanding of the freedom of human persons. And here, too, we would find the same originality and fruitfulness that we find in his thought on human sexuality. But rather than expand on his personalism, let me use the time that remains to turn in another direction. And let me tell you about the place of beauty in his understanding of the world. So here I come to the third part, von Hildebrand as philosopher of beauty and of the heart. Now when we think of beauty, we first of all think of beauty in art, beauty in nature. Von Hildebrand acknowledges all such beauty and in fact takes it very seriously. But he also discerns beauty on a much vaster scale. And we'll see this by getting acquainted with his idea of value, which stands at the center of his philosophy. Now, by value, he means simply the inner excellence or dignity or preciousness of a being. Uh, we will be thinking about value in von Hildebrand's sense if we recall the um, famous definition that Oscar Wilde gave of the cynic, the one who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. So we have, in the sense of von Hildebrand, the value of a person's courage or of his or her intelligence, or the value of living beings, or the greater value of conscious living beings. Now, Van Hildebrand claims that everything of value, not just works of art, gives off some beauty, has something of the radiance or fragrance that we call beauty, the courage of the courageous person. The mind of the deep thinker has its beauty. And we register that beauty whenever we are filled with admiration for the courageous person or the deep thinker. Now, I wish I had time to explain um, how, I'll do that in the seminar that uh, continues tomorrow, explain how von Hildebrand's concept of value marks a certain advance over traditional philosophical language of good. And I think I could show that the advance comes in part from the fact that value includes this moment of beauty, whereas good is not included in the same way. But I want to take this discussion of beauty in a somewhat different direction and show you what von Hildebrand's affirmation of beauty leads to in his understanding of the human person. Von Hildebrand is led to take very seriously the affectivity of the person, the heart. He goes so far as to say that the human person 
is not distinguished from other animals by intellect and will only, equally important, he argues, is the heart. The traditional view is that our affective energy originates out of our bodily life and is at first unruly and disordered, and that this energy gets ordered and channeled by our intellect and will. But the Milderbrand thinks this fails to do justice to the affectivity of persons. If you are, for example, filled with heartfelt gratitude for some deliverance, your gratitude is not just your will ordering some amorphous affective energy. No, gratitude, the gratitude you feel, is from the beginning engendered by your understanding of some great good for yourself and is thereby rightly ordered from within. Thus, Van Hildebrand holds, to make a long story much shorter, that we have three fundamental centers of personal life, and not just two, besides the traditionally recognized intellect and will, there is the, for him, co-equal heart. But how exactly, you might ask, is this stress on the heart connected with von Hildebrand's strong sense of beauty? Well, when something discloses itself to us in its beauty, we don't just recognize the beauty intellectually or will to experience it, but we take delight in it and are effectively moved by it. So if we human persons live amidst beauty in the way that Van Hildebrand thinks we do, then we cannot fail to be effectively related to the world. So his stress on beauty and his vision of reality corresponds to his stress on the heart in his vision of the human person. Now, Van Hildebrand is known uh, for his work in philosophy of love. Here it is, um, one of the first fruits of the Van Hildebrand Legacy Project. He differs from many other philosophers in his strong affirmation of the affective character of love. He holds that love is not only a commitment of the will. I can will the good of another as much as I like if I do not take some affective delight in the other. I do not really love the other. Nor will the other feel loved if he or she is just the recipient of my beneficent willing. He will feel loved only when he knows that I take delight in his presence. Von Hildebrand understood that I withhold something of myself from another if my commitment to the other is only by way of my will. He says that my real self is awakened and engaged in my relation to the other only when I feel something for the other, only when I am effectively moved by the other. I can't, he argues, really be present to the other uh, except by feeling something for him or her. Now, at the same time, von Hildebrand resists the idea that love is blind. He holds that love is, in the language of his value philosophy, a value response, that is, a response to some perceived excellence or goodness in the beloved person. It is, of course, not just some one excellent quality of the other that awakens my love, but a certain excellence of the beloved person as a whole. And, and here is the point at which I'm driving, this excellence awakens love only when it is experienced in all its beauty. It is, as he says, the Gesamtschönheit, the comprehensive beauty of the beloved person that awakens my love with its affective Ardor. Love is then not blind, it's not a vital energy that breaks out irrationally, it rather responds to the beauty perceived 
in the beloved person. And so we see here in his philosophy of love that correspondence of beauty and the heart of which I was just speaking. Now, I spoke above of the Hildebrand's personalism. His teaching on beauty and the heart is a basic article of his personalism. And once again, we find von Hildebrand using his personalism to enrich his own Christian tradition, just as he did with his teaching on sexuality. And here's just one example. By carrying out this rehabilitation of beauty and the heart, he strikes a blow at a certain utilitarian temptation that Christians have often felt. I'm referring to the idea that all earthly goods are really just instrumental goods, things to be used for the saving of our souls and attaining to the vision of God. Von Hildebrand objects. He says that whenever I take delight in something of beauty, I relate to that beauty, however finite and earthly it may be, in a radically non-utilitarian way. A great friendship, for example, is not a purely instrumental good. Taking delight in the company of my friend is incompatible with instrumentally using him to attain to God. Believers will, of course, connect their friendships with the ultimate things, but not instrumentally. And here is another example of the fruitfulness of von Hildebrand's thought on beauty in the heart, and with this I will conclude. I mentioned his conversion to Catholicism. He had grown up with no religious formation, but early on he was strongly drawn to the Catholic Church, into which he was received in 1914 at the age of 24. And the basis for his conversion was not primarily the study of church history or of Catholic apologetics or even of the Catholic philosophical tradition. Max Scheler, the great German philosopher who had a profound influence, set him on his path to conversion by calling his attention to the saints. It was, above all, the radiant supernatural beauty that von Hildebrand found in the saints that moved him to convert and that sustained his faith for the rest of his life. Years after his conversion, he wrote his work, The Transformation in Christ, which he regarded as his major religious work. It has become a 20th century classic of Christian spirituality. And in it, he examines different Christian attitudes that make up the christliche Grundgesinnung, the fundamental Christian stance. He examines Christian humility, Christian patience, Christian meekness, Christian trust. And by means of the most interesting contrast, he shows what these Christian virtues are and what they are not. He shows in particular that they cannot be reduced to the natural stances that resemble them. Thus, he shows that humility, I take just one instance, does not start with the immensity of the cosmos and arrive at a sense of myself as a mere speck within such a whole. The lowliness of humility is not set within any such quantitative framework. Humility is also not just a reasonable sense of my limits, together with a glad rec recognition that many others are more capable than I am. Humility, he argues, arises and can only arise in the encounter with the living God of the Judeo-Christian revelation. And von Hildebrand works out the distinctive supernatural character of humility and the other Christian virtues in such a way, and here I come to the main point, that he shows forth the unearthly beauty of these virtues. It is the same beauty that he had found in the saints. In this work, he is simply reflecting on 
this beauty virtue by virtue. I should add that von Hildebrand was far from turning the saints into an object of aesthetic experience. He abhorred all aestheticism. The beauty of the saints was not the main point of their holiness in the way in which the beauty of a work of art is its main point. The beauty of the saints was for him the radiance or fragrance of their holiness, as I have said. But the failure to experience this radiance makes for an impoverished experience of the saints. We get cut off from their lovableness, from their power to motivate our discipleship and to reinforce our faith. Well, you've all heard that significant line of Dostoevsky, beauty will redeem the world. But Hildebrand agrees in the sense that it was the beauty, the supernatural beauty of the Christian saints and the splendor of their virtues that was the single greatest mainstay of his faith. And here we come to a special sense of von Hildebrand's thought on beauty and the heart of special importance for us at the beginning of the 21st century. If we are looking for moral orientation or for the reinforcement of a beleaguered faith, we will find in von Hildebrand much that illumines our understanding. He was a penetrating critic of relativism in all its forms and an ardent defender of the objectivity of truth and good in his moral philosophy. He throws new light on the virtues and vices. But there's always something more at work in all of these analyses. He has a special sense for the beauty of truth and the beauty of value. He cannot talk about the truths of religion without bringing out a certain glory that he discerns shining through them, or rather, shining through those persons who live totally committed to them. In the encounter with his work, we can expect to find our religious commitment renewed not only intellectually, but also affectively. There may even be in him the makings of a kind of argument from beauty for the truth of revelation, an argument that the men and women of our time long to hear. Thank you. Deeply moving, questions, deeply moving questions. Or if you have any witness to bear, uh, we'd be happy to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, please. His remark, about, or your remark about real love doesn't come about unless you appreciate the other person. Yeah. That's really a lot of implications uh, related to the question of the unity of other love and self love. Correct? Uh, I didn't get the last part. The relation of other love and self love. The, uh, oh, yes. That question about how do those two go, go together? That right. point is a big, evidently, is a big, has a lot of implications about that question. Yeah, that's a, that's a very uh, uh, important and difficult question, the relation of self-love and love of others. It's addressed in this treatise of his um, in a very original way in chapter 9. Now, give me the edge of your question with regard to self-love. If you enjoy something that's yes. good, of you, good for you simultaneously. Oh, yes, I see what you mean, yes. So right. the two are... And that right, both. right, yes, that, the self-love and the self-fulfillment as a kind of reflex of the love of another, the affective love of another, and yes. Compared to when some, a lot of times, self-love seems to be going against yourself, 
this is not. Yes, that's right. So the, yeah. fun, the point here is that for the properly ordered soul, there isn't a conflict between love of other and self-love. Yes. No, not uh, for von Hildebrand. That, uh, he, he stresses very strongly this um, other-centeredness, this for the sake of the other, uh, this response to the beauty of the other. So you could think uh, somehow oneself is uh, lost or used in the process. But he uh, has a, 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 a very deep insight into the uh, coming to oneself that lies just in that, uh, uh, that uh, self-giving and that, that affirmation of the other for his own sake. Well, there's no going against yourself in that act you're describing. You're going for yourself just as much as you're going for the other person. Because you get the enjoyment of the same Right. Thing. But you know, it, when Hildebrand would resolutely say, if I somehow am taking delight in the other or serving the other for the sake of enhancing my own ultimate well-being, then love is disordered. It has to be received as a gift and not intended as the main point. Otherwise, that whole transcendence toward the beloved person and affirmation, which is so life-giving for the other, is compromised. The other doesn't even feel loved when he senses it's all for the sake of my own flourishing. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm actually a student of Florida, so I particularly appreciate uh, the legacy of the But my question was, um, in his speaking about the, the heart as a sort of third faculty of the soul, yeah. co-equal with the intellect yeah. I was wondering whether it would be better to, or it's not better, I, I'm asking whether or not he does actually uh, bring up the simplicity of the evil, simplicity in kind of its mystic sense. Yeah. Uh, um, in yeah. the sense that any affect needs the intellect, because I can't of course. effectively oh. be processing without knowing it. Of and course. also, affectation is dead without the will. I have to right. actually make an act once I have that affect. Yeah. So, um, does he develop a sort of a, a more yeah. sim like, simple conception of the soul yeah. in, the, in the sense of like not having these faculties that we balance? Right, yes. Well, the interpenetration of the three, you know, intellect, will, and heart, is very much stressed. And um, he, he thinks that the, the dignity of the heart is shown by the fact that it, uh, the deepest movements of the heart are responses to something first understood, some goodness of a person, or some need, or uh, some uh, uh, you know, moment of crisis. There's something understood that um, moves the heart. And so, uh, the, the so-called intellect, the center of understanding, is constantly in collaboration with the heart. And, and if it weren't, why, then the heart would, after all, uh, not be able to maintain itself as uh, you know, a significant center of personal life. You're still, I suppose, speaking in the sense of the heart as this thing opposed to the intellect, opposed to the will, as yeah. a separate thing that yeah. must be juggled yeah. No, no, it's, it's certainly three powers of one and the same person. And, of course, uh, with the will, I mean, nobody loves another without a, a commitment to will the good of the other. And nobody loves without understanding, you know, the beauty of the beloved person. So the love with its affectivity has that connection to what I understand and what I commit myself to with the will. So there's a... He perhaps stresses the heart because he's trying to um, bring to light something that he thinks has been too long neglected. But in his full account, like in his book called The Heart, you have uh, a, a very balanced uh, account of how these three centers, as it were, collaborate in the life of the one person. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to ask you a question about, about uh, von Hildebrand's condemnation of, of Nazism mm -hmm. and the relationship that might be in there, a potential for, for kind of a dialogue between Christianity and Judaism. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if there's any kind of a, any potential that you see as maybe von Hildebrand being a conduit um, mm -hmm. moving past 
history and into maybe the 21st century. Mm. Whereas I think sometimes figures like Edith Stein can also be more of a point of contention, it seems like, in, in recent yeah. times. I was wondering what you think um, von Hildebrand's role might be in, in maybe being a, a conduit for that uh, dialogue. Yeah. Well, maybe the most significant um, thing to mention is uh, the fact that he was, with an amazing clarity of vision, opposed to anti-Semitism in all the forms in which he encountered it. He even found among people who shared his aversion to Hitler, um, uh, and often among committed Catholics, uh, uh, a rather offensive anti-Semitism. And so in the pages of his review, he um, speaks with a voice uniquely clear uh, at that time about the evil, the inhumanity, the unchristian stance of anti-Semitism. So that, uh, he, he often rebukes uh, his fellow Catholics by saying, look, you get agitated at Hitler when he wants to take over your schools or to uh, impose new taxes on you or when a bishop is um, offended or harmed. But he said, for the Catholic conscience, it should outrage you just as much whether it's a Jew, an atheist, or a bishop, it doesn't matter. The offense against God, the moral horror, is the same. And so uh, there was uh, uh, a, uh, in fact, in reading his memoirs, one discovers um, how uh, rather deep-rooted there was in Catholic Austria a certain anti-Semitism. But when you read what he writes on that subject in the pages of his review, it is uh, a, a voice amazingly clear about uh, the, the evil of anti-Semitism. Yeah. Yes, you have a question? Oh, yes. Um, I know you mentioned before that um, with the collaboration of the heart, the knowledge, and the will, uh, that the heart is your true identity, like the uh, affectivity is like uh -huh. your true identity, kind of. So I was just wondering, um, would you say that uh, von Hildebrand put that as superior to the will, or uh, like the no. heart as the most important thing? No, he doesn't say or that. they work together? He doesn't say that. He just, um, he, he thinks that the will and the freedom of the will you know, is uh, uh, the signature of the human person. He's not out to put that into question. Uh, he just thinks that uh, a person can become present effectively in a way in which he or she can't by a resolute commitment of the will. In that respect, the heart has a certain special excellence. It lets uh, the person be present and it provides a medium for uh, real loving understanding of another. But no, he never uh, says that it somehow is the defining power of the human person or somehow superior to the will. Yeah. I just want to add something. There's the one case that I can think of where the distinction between the intellect, the, the will, and the heart um, brings out a kind of difference is when he describes the fact that there are moments where the heart and the will have, so to speak, different missions. So in the case of a great loss, for example, where he says that the heart is called to grieve, but the will is still called to accept the will of God. Yeah. So at a moment like that, he somehow articulates in a richer way human experience. Yes. So that's perhaps a case where, the, right. where, they don't, where there isn't just a total coordination, but right. this idea yeah. of different missions almost. Right. Different and, and there are even some cases where, for him, the uh, the, the, the thing I'm supposed to do is an act of will in a moment of temptation. You know, what I feel isn't so important. The uh, decisive thing is to say no with the will. So he's quite, does, does justice to those moments where everything turns on the decision of the will. Yeah. This is a very philosophically interested uh, uh, group, I see uh, <laughs> rusty questions, just like we've been getting in the seminar. Yes, uh, uh, Dr. Grosby, could I ask you to expand a little bit on what Hildebrand's work meant for uh, John Paul II as well as for Pope Benedict, yeah. given the two different 
areas of theological interest for those two mm -hmm. folks, uh, viewed from the outside as having quite different uh, yeah. interests. But Hildegard has made a great deal of both. Yes. Well, you know, I, I think in the case of John Paul, what you have is not so much an influence of one on the other, um, but a kind of uh, convergence of kindred minds. They, um, uh, they fought in fundamentally the same way about man and woman and the personalist view of sexuality. But um, all my research into some potential uh, dependency of Wojtyla on von Hildebrand hasn't yielded anything. I think I, they had a common master. You know, one of von Hildebrand's teachers was this great Max Scheler. And Wojtyla was profoundly influenced by Scheler. So through that common uh, philosophical source, I think, uh, uh, and, and through, above all, their uh, shared faith, they, um, uh, they, they run parallel and converge in remarkable ways with each other. Now, as for Benedict, he does quote von Hildebrand in a number of places and expresses a very great <coughs> appreciation for his work. They met, actually, in 1948, when Ratzinger was just a young parish priest in Munich. And von Hildebrand was giving a talk in his first return to Europe after the Second World War. And uh, uh, that was apparently a very strong impression on Ratzinger from what he uh, tells. And I think it's especially von Hildebrand's work, which I mentioned, The Transformation in Christ, that uh, Ratzinger cites. In, although he also cites The Trojan Horse in the City of God, which I had mentioned as well. It was not, I think, um, you know, a major influence, but a, an important one on Ratzinger. Yeah. Christopher. Uh, uh, we have a question from online. Uh, Christian Ducker asks, can we understand the person as the hermeneutical key to the whole philosophy of Dietrich von Hildebrand? Yeah. <laughs> well. <clears throat> I'm always suspicious of hermeneutical keys. Yeah, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you could just as well say, can we understand the person as the key and leave hermeneutical out and have more or less the same <laughs> thought? Uh, let's just say it was, uh, I wouldn't have called him a personalist, a major Christian personalist, if there were not uh, this primary focus on the person. On the other hand, I mean, he's not, doesn't focus on the person in the, in the sense of a kind of questionable humanism or man-centeredness. And Hildebrand often speaks about the uh, curse of a, of a disordered man-centeredness and uh, this idea of giving glory to God or the adoration of God whereby we forget ourselves in the divine majesty. That was very important for him. So in that sense, it's the human person before God Put that way, you're, you can say you're right at the center of von Hildebrand's thought. Yeah. I think I'll ask the last question. Please, um, Rusty. You, in discussing uh, the witness of von yeah. Hildebrand, you really drew attention to the, his ability to read the signs of the times. Mm -hmm. And you knew him yeah. uh, later in life, yeah. and he was your mentor. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could comment on what his concerns were yeah. as a Christian witness, as a philosophical witness yeah. in America, yeah. you know, in, in the last decade of his life. What did he yeah. see as the yeah. as the issue that really required mm -hmm. the, the Christian to speak the truth clearly without yes. compromise? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, you know he was very concerned about this uh, post-conciliar confusion, and and even though he had. Um, played an important role in preparing the ground in the church for the Second Vatican Council, most especially the chapter on marriage, but in other respects too. For instance, that idea that human goods are not just instrumental things, but have to be appreciated in their own right and related to God in some non-instrumental way. That finds some wonderful expressions in Gaudium et Spes, and that also was anticipated by him. But the um, uh, confusion that was unleashed, as it were, in that post-conciliar uh, period 
uh, that grieved him greatly and was the source of uh, uh, much that he wrote in the last decade of his life. I, I think the most, um, perhaps the uh, most significant book there is what we mentioned, the Trojan horse in the city of God. Uh, and, uh, and, and as you might expect, there was, of course, a concern about doctrine and doctrinal relativism and the false ecumenism that drops the question of truth. But of capital concern for him was the loss of beauty in the liturgy. That coheres with this whole theme of beauty in his thought. And that, and that was, I think, also a close point of contact with Ratzinger. Uh, the, the deaf uh, deformation of uh, the liturgy as he often uh, experienced, the triviality, uh, the plainness, uh, the human, all too human uh, ring of it, and the loss of the liturgical riches that uh, are perhaps now being in part recovered. That uh, was a particular focus of his grief there in his last years. Well, thank you again yeah. for, for your beautiful lecture. Yeah. Yeah.